and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. Do not adjust your sets. This is still Jason Barnard. That was a little snippet of Andrew Luke Oldham there and a track that you will probably be familiar with. I'm here to talk to Andrew, a legendary producer, uh, manager of the Rolling Stones from 1963 to 67 and founder of Immediate Records and latterly a DJ on Little Stevens Underground Garage. Because he's got a new uh, podcast, Podchat Out, Sounds and Vision. Let's uh, listen a little bit more to my chat with Andrew where we talk about some of his favourite tracks and uh, his, his life journey along the way. Hello. Hello. Is that Andrew? Yes, it is. Hi there. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, Jason Barnard here from the Strange Brew podcast. How are you? Good? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. Can you tell me a little bit more about your podcast, Podchat? Yeah. Uh, Sounds of Vision. I was um, first aware of it through uh, listening to your show with uh, photographer Mick Rock. Well, I yes, certainly I call it a pod chat because the premise of it is to have chats with people I know. And it's also, as I live in Bogota and Vancouver, it's a great way of staying in touch with my friends who I don't get to see as much as uh, I would like. So a lot of them, you know, a lot of the people, well, most of them are very close friends, Mick Rock especially. I've known him since we lived in New York in the oh, in the 70s, running their version of England in the 60s. And it's like, it's been four years. I used to work, do disc jockeying for the guitarist of Bruce Springsteen, Stephen Van Zandt. And I did that for him on that American Sirius XM thing for about eight or nine years. And there were a lot of great rewards from that process. And I'm sure that you're familiar with it because of the work that you do, where I got to know a lot of people very well without actually meeting them, like listeners. You know, because if you allow them to correspond with you, it's amazing. I've got friends from that jotted all over, you know, all over the place. Well, all over America, because that was just in America. But anyway, this seemed like a good thing to do. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot from it. You know, I th- you know, you can think you know somebody, but once you switch the mic on, <laughs> it becomes a, a different thing. Mm-hmm, indeed. And yeah, you've, you've been speaking to sort of friends of yours about their first-hand experiences. Um, so as well as Mick Rock, you've already heard of uh, from you talking to Rob Swartz, who's uh, you know, a big player in the advertising industry, uh, with parallels there, actually. Exactly. Rob Schwartz, because he also, apart from being a, a, a real kingpin guru in the... I mean, he's just at the top of his game. And one of his underpinnings is his love for music. And as I've been... Uh, in love with the world of advertising since I first started, that was most enjoyable. Danny Goldberg, I'm fascinated by because he comes from a different, uh, although I think we're close to the same age, we didn't ask, but um, his experiences with, um, mainly with acts that I wouldn't go near. I mean, I can't imagine handling Nirvana. Mm -hmm. You know, I come from the era where people developed drug habits they didn't arrive with them of course yeah i mean it is a big difference so to see how um and his some his books danny goldberg's books on the subject are fascinating um and he is fascinating because he's uh you know he has done everything from running record companies to uh 
managing, um, I'm not saying all the people he managed were high, but um, it's the nature of the beast that obviously a lot of them were. And then upcoming, we have people like uh, New York photographer called Jerry Schatzberg, who was famous for his uh, modeling stuff in the early 60s. Um, and he did for me the Rolling Stones picture of the Rolling Stones in drag in 1966. Ah, brilliant. He also uh, discovered and directed the first two films by Al Pacino. And uh, Panic in Needle Park, <laughs> sorry we haven't left the subject of drugs yet, that was about junkies in a park in New York. And then another film with Gene Hackman, one of the first films in which Gene Hackman was above the title called Scarecrow. A great film with Faye Dunaway, Diary of a Something Child, in 1966, which is an incredible movie. I, can't, I don't know what the title is in English, but uh, if anybody looks up... Uh, then uh, I was traveling recently, got together with Johnny Marr, ex-Smith, now totally Mr. Johnny Marr. He's been a, a good friend for about 15 years. Oh, okay. And so it goes on as we will start to travel again next week, so see who else we can run into. And for today's show, you've picked a selection of tracks that we're going to talk about and go through today. And the first one is Johnny Ray and the Little White Cloud That Cried. And right. You talk about Johnny Ray in your um, book, Stoned, um, you know, about Johnny kind of being a precursor to Elvis. I think he's in both, man. I think he's in both, actually. Yeah. Well, to start with, he was a huge, he was a huge influence on a lot of us back then. I mean, John Lennon used to say, you know, I mean, okay, Elvis is all well and good, but first was Johnny Ray. Lord, when I was about 11 or 12, he was appearing at the London Palladium. And, uh, you know, I mean, the guy was, um, you know, just a pure sex machine, basically. He also did write some of his material. I mean, his records have not stood up because they were done under the auspices of, like, 1950s A&R men. So, you really couldn't tell the difference between David Whitfield, some of Billy Fury, and Johnny Ray. They were, they were all made by people who prefer to be recording Frankie Lane or something, or Doris Day. So, whereas, you know, the next one, Elvis, the records have stood up for incredibly, or the, the early ones. Johnny Ray was, uh, was a trip, you know, because he had that great androgynous gift so that, you know, a couple could go and see him and the husband was not necessarily offended without actually knowing the reason why. I went walking down by the river Feeling very sad inside When all at once I saw in the sky the little white cloud that cried. He told me he was very lonesome and no one cared if he lived or died and said sometimes the thunder and lightning make all the little clouds hide. He said, have faith in all kinds of weather, for the sun will 
So from Johnny Ray, we go forward into the rock and roll era and Eddie Cochran, 20 Flight Rock. You talked in the past about Eddie kind of giving you and your generation the drive and sort of attitude to um, push forward. Yes, it was. And also, you know, we can, if we want to exaggerate, state the position that if we were born and raised in England or the UK, that Eddie died for us in England, because as you know, he did die in the West Country mm-hmm. in uh, a car crash in a Zephyr with Gene Vincent. And I think the co-writer, Sharon Sheely, was in the car. But Eddie was, okay, if you didn't have black hair when you were at school, when you were 11 or 12, if you had black hair, you could pretend you were Elvis. But if you didn't, which I didn't, it was Eddie Cochran and James Dean. And the records were incredible. The room sound on the records was was incredible. Later, when we got to start to go to America, one learned the reason that Eddie Cochran certainly knew what he was doing. Jerry Capehart was another co-writer, but the the records were made in studios on, on, uh, on the Sunset Strip, in which later Phil Spector, the Beach Boys, and Western, I think Western recorders all recorded at. And also the big moment of something that brought, as rock and roll was not completely coming to our shores then, was live, was the 1957 film, uh, The Girl Can't Help It, with Jane Mansfield, which basically was like, you know, a video, you know, the, <coughs> Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent, um, Little Richard were the standouts. Excellent. Let's give Eddie Cochran, 20 Flight Rock, a spin. Let's do just that. Too much to wait. All this climbing is getting me down. 
I'll find my corpse draped over a rail But I climb one, two, five, three, five, four Five, six, seven, five, eight, five more I'm on the cliff, I'm starting to drag Fifteen to four, I'm ready to sight Get to the top, I'm too tired to rock Next, Andrew, we have uh, from Eddie Cochran, we go to Johnny Otis and Willie and the Handjive. Had you left school by this uh, by this time? No, 58. I think Johnny Otis was 58. And the amazing thing for us growing up in England at that time was that that, that record got released in England on Capital, which is EMI. So got a sort of major push. And it was actually from a very small American independent label. I mean, Johnny Otis was a band leader. He was also part of that L.A. specialty records, Bumps, Blackwell, Art Fine, that produced so much great stuff like specialty Little Richard, Sam Cooke on Keen. You know, there was a, an, an early Libra installer, too. So it was unusual for an ind- a record coming out of an independent label to get released on an EMI label. It went top 10, which was pretty amazing for then. I mean, I was in school in some farmer's place. And boy, did that record change my life. So again, just like Eddie Cochran, that was one of the uh, one of the sounds that gave you and kind of your, your peers kind of a, a, a push. Well, music gave you, I hope it gives every generation, it gives you hope to start with at that time and probably at any time. It gives you a language of your own that you don't have to share with your mother or your father, or it's it's probably, you know, what Justin Bieber is to an eight-year-old or 11-year-old. I mean, you know, it's words that don't make sense to adults, and that's one of the, one of the reasons that you love these words and, and these songs. I mean, you know, Elvis Presley, if you say Heartbreak Hotel, what... Um, Otis Blackwell song. That's an incredible visual metaphor. You know, we knew what a hotel was. None of us had really stayed in one. And heartbreak we hadn't had yet. So it's just the, the um, a what bubble, loo bubble, up, bam, boom. Or summertime blues. Summertime blues in England where the summer lasted three weeks then. I remember we weren't allowed into too many cinemas until... You know, most films were naff anyway because it was controlled. Cinema was controlled in the same way by things like the rank organization, as our listening habits were controlled by the BBC. But then when you left school, you you sought out fashion designer Mary Quant and uh, went to work for her? Yeah, that was my first job upon uh, leaving school in 1960. And it was perfect. It was all, I mean, because before there was pop that meant anything to us, in many ways... The Mary Quant Company, which was her, her husband, and a friend from school who made sure they got paid, was like an independent record company operation. It just ran very smoothly. They lived a high and a great life. The carpets were thick. The teacups were thin. Everybody was uh, more than reasonably happy because it was, okay, without being disrespectful to the British models of pop that we had then, be it Marty Wilde, Billy Fury, Cliff Richard or whatever, that's besmirched by the likes of Laurie London and Aka Bilk. And Helen Shapiro was great. Look how many hits she had. I mean, she was like Amy Winehouse without the drugs. So everything repeats. Yeah? But the possibilities of England only got through occasionally because it was still being recorded by a well-meaning but a 1950s A&R system. 
you know, Billy Fury was left to his own devices. He, he made a couple of decent records, but once you put him in a studio with orchestra and chorus, look out, not, not too good. And then a few years later, you um, did publicity for Brian Epstein and the Beatles? Epstein, yeah, four months in uh, the beginning of 63. Basically, because Brad Epstein still had his operation in Liverpool, I think in the summer of 63, or the autumn of 63, to, to London. But, you know, back then, man, people didn't um, make long-distance phone calls. You know, he, he didn't, didn't have a staff in his office who'd pick up the phone and call the Daily Mirror or call, you know, you know someone. So I met them. I was doing publicity for a pop singer called Mark Winter, and I, I met, um, or I introduced myself to uh, Epstein at Thank You Lucky Stars, the TV show that used to be recorded in Birmingham. And I got the London gig to, you know, I basically in those four months, I would have the pleasure of their company once every 10 days when they stayed in a hotel in Sloan Square. And I would just take them in a taxi down to um, all of the musical papers, the papers, some fashion papers, and then all the papers that existed then, mainly for young girls, Honey, Mirabelle, and things like that. So in this period, you were seeking out and finding the the most creative and cutting edge people on at the time yeah i'll agree with that <laughs> you know um uh that's the way it seems to have worked out but it isn't it's very you know you are blessed when in the majority or enough cases what you are attracted to the public either is or will be you know that's kind of divine destiny you can't um you, there's no school for that well, let's go back to uh, your school days, Andrew, and uh, play Johnny Otis and Willie and the Hand Jive. I know a cat named Way Out Willie. He got a cool little chick named Rockin' Billy. He can walk and stroll in Susie Q And do that crazy hand jive too Papa told Willie you'll ruin my home You and that hand jive has got to go Willie said Papa don't put me down They're doing that hand jive all over town He's doing a hand jive with Sister Flo Grandma gave baby sister time Said do that hand jive one more time Doctor and a lawyer and an Indian chief Now they all dig that crazy beat Way out Willie gave them all a treat when he did that hand jive with his feet Hand jive Hand jive Hand jive Doing that crazy hand jive Hey, hey Ah, Willie and Millie 
Andrew, we move forward again a few more years and we get to Dion and Donna, the prima donna. What was it about Dion that inspires you to, well, to this day? Dion's incredible because even, even though at the time one might only occasionally like another American Italian singer, say like Frank Sinatra or even less Tony Bennett, Dion DiMucci had the same gift in that he was an instrument, less than a lead vocal. I mean, he, his gift, I mean, he could have been a saxophone, he could have been a piano, because he, yeah, I mean, he just, I mean, I saw him on stage again. Uh, I missed him in 1962, but I saw him on stage again in Connecticut about 10 years ago. And it's it was like watching a, a rock doo-wop Frank Sinatra when you just see he's you know he's all ears for he's playing inside the arrangement as opposed to let's say um if you go and see my lovely friend peter noon of herman's hermits as i did about five years ago and he said i've just got to do a sound check and the sound check means to turn the band down but dion's a different kind of artist and uh it's very sexy Seeing, so you know, I mean, it's it's not that far removed from Chet Baker, or I don't know, Ella Fitzgerald or something. You know, it's 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 a different kind of ability to be at one with the band, uh, in to be inside the track, and uh, that's that's one of the gifts of, of apart from great writing, of Dion DiMucci. Oh, 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 oh,
worth a five and ten cent store She wants to be just like a Zaza Gabor Even though she's Donna next door By this period, you were managing and producing the Rolling Stones. It's interesting looking back at that that first first few singles and, and the first Stones albums, that mix of the Stones R&B roots tied to a bit more of a pop sensibility that some would say you brought. Yeah, and also one of the great side benefits was that you know I liked R&B on commercial records, but I didn't like R&B for the sake of it. I I would often prefer my R&B when done by people like Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller or Johnny Otis or the people from Specialty Records or the people who made the Sam Cooke records when they made hits. I liked hits. And so I wasn't really at one with the Rolling Stones over their overt love of anything that was on Chess Records or Duke Peacock. Bobby, I love some of the Bobby Bland records. I think Turn On Your Love Light or something. So in many ways, when I saw the Rolling Stones, the experience was not tarnished by the fact that I had an opinion of how they were playing rhythm and blues blues things by the masters. I didn't go, oh, no, they didn't do that as well as Bo Diddley, or they didn't do that as well as Woody Dixon. So I was able to be taken over completely by what they did do. Mm-hmm. So as the Rolling Stones manager and producer, he contributed to shaping their sound, encouraging Mick and Keith to write songs in this first recording period for the group? All of that and the beginning of their compositions with Tell Me. And we're also blessed. You see, we originally tried to record with the first single in a standard recording studio with four tracks, and it really didn't work. I mean, Come On only went to number 18, and uh, we hyped a lot of that. Right on its own, it probably would have only gone to 38. But none of us knew what we were doing in a recording studio including me. I mean, I had no actual intention of becoming their producer until upon getting to know them, it became apparent that they they would not function well under the system that existed, which ironically the Beatles functioned wonderfully under. The Beatles could draw on the other musical gifts of either their producer, George Martin, or their engineer, Norman Smith, or Jeff Emmerich, who all had such a... a, a devotion to music that the Beatles could utilize. Uh, I mean, I, I think, I don't know, I think Norman Smith had a trad jazz thing, which you can see come into play. And, anyway, the Beatles can take care of themselves. But the Rolling Stones, I knew wouldn't function. So I, I wanted to record them independently anyway for uh, a lot of, quote, creative reasons, but also financial. But we didn't work on four tracks because we couldn't operate in a system of what you hear is what you get. If we'd like to take, we then had to mix it, and you can either ruin it or make it by the way you mix it. And We really didn't have the experience. So I went to this um, old um, demo recording studio in number four, Denmark Street. I hope they haven't knocked it down yet. Building, right? And with this great guy called Bill Farley, um, who used to just make demos, man, you know? And the thing, we, without knowing it, 
we captured the great thing of that made most of our, our heroes records, which was room sound. You know, where uh, I mean, room sound is king. And that, and the you know the songwriting of Mick and Keith, and the band's contribution all led to that fantastic run of hits and music such as the last time satisfaction painted black etc mm-hmm. couldn't go wrong <laughs> look at most people's quote first or second golden runs um there's not many acts that continue to be at one with the public and no instinctively you can't think about it you either got it or you haven't got it but it does become more difficult once you move into the penthouse you know if you look at say the the run of songs from say Donovan or Jimmy Cliff or um, Lionel Richie, which was a little longer, but you know that's why one of the great things with a group that I was familiar with, like the Mamas and Papas, they wrote nearly everything that was a hit or got recorded by them before they made their first record. Because once you get into the glitter, your life changes, you haven't got time, you think differently, and then suddenly you're in a penthouse and down in the street is the Doors and Buffalo Springfield and they're rising to the street and you're not. You can't change that. You can't say, hey guys, let's go and slum it for a while and see what you come up with. But then they had their rest after I left them, the Stones, like in Satanic Majesties, and then a year and a half later, when they got together with Jimmy Miller, they had an incredible second golden run, which fixed, which which belonged to those times as perfectly as what I did belonged to, to my times with them. So by 1965, you set up Immediate Records with Tony Calder, such a productive period for you, and you've chosen Chris Fallow, Out of Time, the number one hit, but of course... Written by Mick and Keith? Yeah, because, you know, at the time, we wanted our little Motown. You know, oh, I wanted my little Motown, and I wanted Mick and Keith to be Holland Dozier in Holland. Um, but, of course, things were getting so busier and more hectic for the Rolling Stones by the middle and end of, like, 1966, that that role then... Um, but that was a wonderful record, man, you know, and, and Mick produced that record, um, the Chris Fowler record, and he did it. He managed to make, I, I mean, in that time, to make an English horn section with charts written for them to play who would generally prefer jazz and not get, uh, he, got a, he, he, he made a great record with, with Chris Fowler. Didn't sell 10 million, which the artist likes to think it did. Sold 180,000. Um, but maybe one day he'll get over it. Um, still singing it, so God bless him. But, um, and then that mantle of, you know, our mini Motown idea, the keeping it in-house, was kind of passed to Steve Marriott and Ronnie Lane for a while. I understand there was no expense spared, um, which later led on to some financial difficulties at Immediate. You bet. I mean, when I ran out of money with the Stones, immediate, you know, you're only three miles away from immediate closing. Okay. I mean, I, after the Rolling Stones, it was my second home, and I spent my money keeping it open. And yet, you're quite right. I mean, the money spent on those records would, it wouldn't be done by somebody who had come into the game to make money. Mm. Mm. I, you know, that's just what I did. But so many great artists in this, uh, period of immediate uh, small faces, Billy Nichols, Eamon Corner, right. even Fleetwood Mac. But yeah, Billy Nichols or Duncan Brown and uh, The Nice and 
for a while dreams came true. I mean, but people, you know, would, but believed. Um, you know, we spent just as much money hyping these things into the charts or on or, or on adverts. But uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. It was, I mean, you know, you just do what. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were still living in a world where we hadn't had to get regular jobs. <laughs> okay, let's give uh, Chris Fallow out of time a spin. Great. That's Mick Jagger on backing vocals, isn't it? Yep. forward to uh, 1973 and Donovan, St. Valentine's Angel from Essence to Essence. That's an album that you uh, co-produced with uh, Don, isn't it? 
Well, actually, I produced him, but artists by that time, when the art copy was handled into the record company, they decided to put their name on it too. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay? Jimmy Cliff did the same thing. But, I mean, hey, you know, the 70s are a... That's what. That's another aspect of the seventies. Um, but uh, Maggie Donovan he used to talk about himself in the third person, so I don't, you know, surprised there wasn't three producers on it. But it was a gr- it was a great opportunity to work with him. I actually straightened up um, for it because I was a little out to lunch at the time. Um, so, and we the, the amount of musicians on that record, you know, the 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 section that backed James Taylor. Uh, Carol King on another couple <coughs> on one cut sailing home with Peter Frampton, Steve Marriott, and then a great combination of uh, musicians from Connecticut where I lived at the time, like on the St. Valentine's Angel. The the a guitarist called uh, Doug Schlink is great, and he was a pleasure. You know, I didn't mind co-producing with him at all. Um, but it is, but he he had, and um, I'm not being rude about him, but I didn't obviously get. We had some really nice songs, but there were no hit songs. Mm, yeah. All of those hit songs had gone to Mickey Most, who'd produced all those things like Hurdy Gurdy Man, Seasons of the Witch, and things like that. And while I was doing the record in London, I'm walking down Park Lane on a Sunday, and um, Mickey came by on a motorbike, and we had a chat, and he told me all the songs that I... He said, I bet I can tell you all the songs you're recording with Donovan, he says. And we're, no, we're not being... Um, vicious about Donovan. This is just, you know, the, <clears throat> this is just the, some of the wonderful whims of most artists, right? And he says, and I bet you he told you that he wrote them the night before. But it still was a great pleasure. I learned a lot from it. And, uh, you know, I picked St. Valentine's Angel because someone had tweeted it to me, right? And I went, oh, that's a nice one. Yeah, good. So we can play it, hoping that for everybody, one way or the other, that every day is Valentine's Day. Why? Does it have to be Just one day In the year When we Give love And share our joy That happy feeling Between girl and boy St. Valentine's Angel Oh, angel of all loving St. Valentine's Angel Give my love to everyone Walk hand 
each other company Saint Valentine's angel Oh angel of all loving Saint Valentine's angel Give my love to everyone How I wish it could be Save Valentine's Day forever For you and me Oh, how I wish it could be Save Valentine's Day forever Next we have Exile, Kiss You All Over from, I think, 1978 on the uh, Rack label. So there is yes, a bit of a Mickey Most connection there. Yeah. I don't think you're involved in uh, producing this uh, track. Uh, what What is it about this song that, that uh, led you to uh, choosing it? I just thought it was a, 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 um, an amazing record. You know, I mean, it was just had a depth of sound and, you know... Um, it was well done at every stage. Well, great songs, so, 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 and very well mastered. I mean, that just record just cut through. Um, it just brought so many different elements into one hit record that uh, I applauded it then and, and wanted to applaud it now. And by this time, you'd um, moved over to uh, South America? Yes, I had. Uh, I first came here in 1975 and then moved full-time in 83. Now it's not full-time because I've been... A lot of my time is down in Canada, in Vancouver. Excellent. Let's play Exile, Kiss You All Over. Please, yeah. Just another lover, know you're everything to me. Every 
And moving forward a year now, you've got uh, Lucio Lucio uh, Dalla, Cosa Sera. Lucio Dalla, yeah. Well, he's an amazing guy. You know, the, the foundation of most of um, Italian pop, unlike, say, I won't go into what it is in Germany, but uh, in France, it's, it is more, you know, a worshipping of R&B and Elvis and, and the, the end result, which we'll come to, of course, Johnny Halliday. But Lucio Dalla... I was working in 78, 79 with a, a, an artist called Francesco de Degori, and um, Lucio Dalla came in and did all the horn parts. I mean, he's just an incredibly... He, unfortunately, he died about five years ago, but the man was unique. Uh, the foundation of Italian pop has a lot to do with jazz. And one of the reasons I picked this Cosi Sera record is because he's playing the, the as well as having written it, playing the keyboards, I'm not sure what else he's playing on it, but the horn solo is just one of the best horn solos I've ever heard. Was he uh, someone who you uh, produced no. in that period? No. Uh, he, he made it around the same time that I was working. I was working in Italy for about two years, and uh, he, he came in for us and played the... Um, played all the horn parts we needed on the record I was making with Francesco de Gregori. 
which, I mean, he, Francesco Liguori wrote a song called Viva l'Italia. I mean, it had to go to number one. So basically, I told the arranger, copy Mal of Kintyre and we're home. And we were. But Lucio was somebody I got to know there at the time. And he was just uh, maybe, you know, a more pop version. I don't know. Br- 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 I mean, it just uh, the, the Eno Bowie or whatever. But I mean, just, you know, you meet artists, a lot of artists who suffer over what they do. And they want you to listen to it with them time and time again. But Lucio Dalla was one of those people. He knew what he was doing at the time. He didn't need to hang about and ego over it. He just wanted to get on with the next minute. I mean, Keith Richards and I, in 1965, were invited to a Frank Sinatra session. And same shtick, man. The guy knew, the guy, Mr. Sinatra, knew exactly what he was doing. He went into the studio. He he sang two or three versions on about three tracks. He came in and he was introduced to us by the um, guy from Reprise Records, Joe Smith, uh, to Keith and I. Like a Rolodex with all artists, um, Frank Sinatra would remember the name of his agent in London, who was a guy called Harold Davison. And he would go, do you know Harold Davison? You know, the same way as, oh, you know, when people are busy, you don't run into Michael Caine on the street in New York and go, hello, Michael, and expect him to know who you are. You introduce yourself. And he, Michael Caine, when I did introduce uh, I said, oh, hello, Andrew. And this is like 86 or 96 or something. He said, hello, Andrew. How are the lads? Because in his world, he didn't wake up one day and go, oh, Andrew Lowden, he's not, he's not with the Rolling Stones any longer. He was busy filming somewhere. What I'm saying about Lucha, Frank Sinatra, anyway, we're introduced to him in the control room. So uh, then he turns around. This is in Two Stoned, uh, but it's well worth telling again. He put his hands on the shoulder of the engineer and said, you know which ones to use. And, you know, that's high pro. And that, you know, so, and that has burst in with, I mean, okay, there's another guy who I've done a pod chat with, a photographer at um, Vanity Fair called Jonathan Becker, who, whereas Annie Leibovitz does all the kind of Willie Nelson, George Clooney, Bob Dylan, who's Springsteen, but those kind of pop rock uh, film royalty portraits. Jonathan Becker does Prince Charles. Um, would do um, the royal family of this and so and so, and then or the high life. And so it doesn't become when he takes a picture. It's not like a big, you know, rock and roll shoot. Let's get warmed up. Let's get great. Let's feel great and so and so. It is it's a quieter thing. And he uses an old Rotaflex camera i think i pronounced that right uh while we were doing our pod chat with jonathan in new york hasn't come out yet he was taking pictures of me and it's very strange because he only takes in about 20 or 25 minutes he only takes three pictures which if you think that he would do princess margaret or prince charles or uh, agnelli from italy or things like that it actually fits the time it's not and it's totally non-intrusive it's not like you're doing a photo session he just happens to be taking pictures while he's chatting to you and only about three in 25 minutes and it's just a totally interesting process say from jerry schatz but or definitely different from mick rock who's there to drum up the energy you know uh, you know i mean if 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 jonathan becker was taking pictures of prince philip which he has he would seamlessly weave his way into the world of prince philip 
so that Prince Philip wasn't even aware the pictures were being taken. And that's why how he takes take his way of taking such great pictures. So these are people who've, you know, mastered their art? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's it, you know. And so it's always, um, you learn. gli alberi la felicità che fa morire a vent'anni anche se vivi fino a cento cosa sarà a far muovere il vento a fermare un poeta ubriaco a dare la morte per un pezzo di pane o un bacio non dato oh cosa sarà che ti svegli al mattino e sei serio Fa morire ridendo di notte all'ombra di un desiderio. Oh, cosa sarà? Che ti spinge a domare una donna bassina perduta. La bottiglia che ti ubriaca anche se non l'hai bevuta. Cosa sarà che ti spinge a picchiare il tuo re, che ti porta a cercare il giusto dove giustizia non c'è? Cosa sarà che ti fa comprare di tutto anche se è di niente che hai bisogno? Cosa sarà che ti strappa dal sogno? Oh, cosa sarà? Che ti fa uscire di tasca dei no, non ci sto Che ti getta nel mare, ti viene a salvare Oh, cosa sarà Che ti dobbiamo cercare Che dobbiamo cercare
And we've been talking about the uh, French music scene a little bit. And so a giant of the uh, French music scene, Johnny Holiday, you've chosen one of his um, more recent tracks before he passed away. What was your reasoning behind this one? Marie, yeah. A couple of reasons for him. Apart from the fact that this December the 6th will be the first anniversary of the death of this national hero. See, but Johnny Halliday, okay, th- this record, Marie, you know, in the 60s, people like Steve Marriott and Ronnie Lane and Peter Frampton and Mick, uh, what was his name? Mick Jones from Foreigner, right? Mm. Johnny Halliday and, and people like Eddie Mitchell would all come into London to record to get that rock and roll sound. Mm. And I remember Steve Marriott saying to me, uh, it's this Johnny Halliday, man, he's a trip. He said, he said, he, he, we walk in the studio and he says, this year I'm Jimi Hendrix. Mm. <laughs> they just take the, the, the great art of, of constructive plagiarism, right? When you've, after you, the people listening to you have heard this record, try and think of what it reminds you of. It's not, it's not a steal. It's just a huge, huge influence. And if it doesn't remind you of Angie by the Stones, I'd be very surprised. Of course, right. But, you know, it, it's like we are. The thing that makes us get into this business is, is our worship of Eddie Cochran or this. Or, or, and there are only 12 notes. So you're bound to be heavily, heavily influenced. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the, the other part that Johnny Halliday played in my life is when I was uh, 16 and he was just 17. Uh, in the south of France, there's the small town, Jouin Le Pan. And at one end of the block, I was working in an English tea room called Butler's Tea Room, uh, serving tea to these English tourists, right? My summer, you know, I'd gone to France to <laughs> manage to stay there till the end of the summer, right? And at the, end of the, at the other end of the block was the casino. Johnny Halliday was already at the age of 17 and a few months, in a white tuxedo, like appearing in the casino. Now, the music was awful, right? Because they got a problem when they're trying to do rock and roll. There's more, I, I, can't, I think this is the way it works. In the French language, there's more syllables, so they could never quite contain it. Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, it would be, be Baba Lula Lula. <laughs> mm. They got to fill in more meter or something like that. But the idea that this guy, you know, and he, I mean, he had a, Strange life. I mean, six months on, six months off. But, you know, I mean, he was like Elvis Cliff and, you know, whatever you want, all rolled into one in France, right? But at the age of 17, this guy is playing in a in a casino in a white tux and things. Just meant a lot to the underpinnings of my ambition. It was like... Well, it wasn't. A, it was less. It was less ambition and more the certain things I don't wish to end up doing. <laughs> And Johnny Halliday, at that time, when I was 16, was a shining beacon of, it doesn't have to be, your future doesn't have to be what the world has told you it's going to be. Now, I'm, I, the last time I was in London, I picked up this book called The War on the Young. Small, thin, wonderful book by a guy called John Sutherland. And one of the keys of the book is saying that Okay, I mean, sometimes I can look back at the 60s and go, well, we didn't really complete the job, did we? You know, not that I was political or, you know, I was about what I was about. But if you look at the 60s as a whole, 
it, uh, so many things were unresolved. But the thesis of this book, The War on the Young, says that at that stage, 1968, when Europe had, and France had all its demonstrations, rebellions, Kent State, four dead in Ohio, uh, the Vietnam War, the figures of the Vietnam War rose from 1963 to 1966 by half a million. You know, um, you can see how the life in the early 60s of, of Roger Waters got tremendously influenced by the world he saw his parents teach in and live in. And but the power, what I'm saying, and get to it, Andrew, stop preaching. Like the powers that be, the people who really controlled the money, the people who even really controlled the Tony Blairs of the day, decided that they would never let youth get such a handle on life again. And in came gradually all the things, whether it's Thatcher or not, or whether it's um, mortgages, whether it's like, cutting employment back to where there are no benefits. You know, we, in many ways in the 60s, we're the last ones who had it all and got near to biting the hand that thought it fed us via music, via drugs, via a certain uh, freedom of disposable income. And do youth the same age have disposable income the same way? Hmm. I don't think so. And in the 60s, you could just walk in into a job just like you did? Yeah. You know, and also we were in a time then before fear. You know, at that time, you'd land, luckily, you know, in a job and think, oh, this is rather good. I better tell my friends about this. Now you wouldn't tell your friends about it because of Schadenfreude and the fear that they might take it from you or it might be taken from you. And then we're suppressed by uh, and blessed by technology. But in terms of if, if you look, the, the book is great because it just... If a few pennies dropped that were not to- that I had experienced, but were not totally logical in my day-to-day life. I didn't sit there and know how difficult it was to get. I mean, we have people, as you know, we've got trouble in Venezuela at the moment, right? It's kind of Syria with a little blood. But people are having to come over, not only, you know, the million and a half that come over the border this year to Colombia, but the Venezuelan government stopped issuing passports and people have to have been coming over our border on kind of day passes just to get medicine for their the basic medicine for their children and their babies that they can't get in Venezuela, one of the largest oil producers in the world. But hey, if you're 19, you get up, dust yourself off and get on with it, don't you? Absolutely. <laughs> let's, uh, let's play Jelly Holiday and uh, Marie. Tout le mal que l'on me fait Oh Marie, si je pouvais Dans tes bras nus me reposer Évanouis mon innocence Tu étais pour moi ma dernière chance Peu à peu tu disparais Malgré mes efforts désespérés Et rien ne sera jamais plus pareil 
J'ai vu plus d'horreur que de merveilles Les hommes sont devenus fous alliés Je donnerai tout pour oublier Oh, 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 oh Marie, si tu savais Tout le mal que l'on me fait Oh Marie, si je pouvais Dans tes bras nus me reposer Et je cours toute la journée Sans savoir où je vais Dans le bruit, dans la fumée Je vois des ombres s'entretuer Ce sera le grand jour Il faudra faire preuve de bravoure Monter au front en première ligne Oh Marie, je t'en prie, fais-moi un signe oh, 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 oh. Tout le mal que l'on m'a fait Oh Marie, j'attendrai Qu'au ciel tu viennes me retrouver Oh Marie, j'attendrai Qu'au ciel tu viennes me retrouver From Johnny Holiday, we get to a similar era. Eddie Mitchell, Solo Route 66. Oh, yeah. I just love this record. He's like, he was like number two in France, right, after Johnny Holiday. <clears throat> and I just loved their total worship of America. So this is a song about, obviously, about Route 66, but a romantic take on it, because normally all your country or rock references to um, Route 66 are upscale. And, and I was playing this, and I was playing Lucia Dalla. I had the privilege this past July. I drove from the Atlantic to the Pacific, going like Portland, Boston, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, and then Fargo. Thank God it was in the summer. Billings, Montana. You know, America is, 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 is actually wonderful. Yeah? <laughs> And this record kind of speaks of someone who's found and enjoyed the same wonder. It's not all New York, L.A., Donald Trump and this, you know. And great to shine a light on, um, you know, these artists given uh, that, you know, you don't hear about them as much in, in you know, in the, the Anglophile world. 
I don't know if they do now, but then, you know, rock and roll stars like Johnny Halliday or Eddie Mitchell would, they could only work France and Belgium. Oh, and Africa, you know, I mean, or whatever, Beirut and places, you know, the, where, the places where it was French language and Lebanon. And, but then they would go to uh, America, pretend they were touring and just go shopping. But they got a unique take on the world as they have in, in movies. You know, there's so many great French movies where nothing actually happens. And you went over as a teen? Oh, yeah, I was 16. Yeah. Before, that was just after I'd worked for Mary Quant. And then again with the Stones? Yep. But, yeah, but it was different. You see, France was the one country that did not totally embrace or accept British rock. The artists wanted a copy. It came over to Olympic Studios and wanted to, you know, make their cover versions of American songs. But okay, in '65, some a little '64, but '65 and '66, in most European countries except France, you always had your local Beatles and your local Stones. And that, of course, stopped in 1967 when, to be your local Beatles or Stones, you had to have a few Rolls Royces, a rock and roll manner, and more money than a media had to spend on your recording. You know, Sergeant Pepper time and things. Uh, and an incredible uh, is where the gifts really came in, not just roll over Beethoven. There is a great, strange Swedish documentary called Rolling with the Stones, which it is able to call itself that because somebody took um, seven minutes of Super 8 film of the Stones in Sweden and put it. The support band was this Swedish band who were the local Rolling Stones. And the film is about them getting together for their 40th anniversary and waiting to see if the lead singer is going to come out of hospital or not or die of cancer, right? So it's quite dark and but interesting as to because it does explain how much effect we already had on people and not forgetting the uh, the effect that you and the stones had when you went over to the, the united states of course well the states it's all because of the beatles it all changed when the beatles played the ed sullivan show in february either the 8th 8th or the 16th in 1964 and that's when the game changed and suddenly what we were doing move from being, oh, wow, this is wonderful, man. We haven't had to get a regular job to this is business. You know, I mean, in, in say this is business, I mean, it didn't mean you suddenly went, oh, money, money, money. No, it meant that you better be fit for this. You know, the it wasn't um, a humber hawk taking you from Welland Garden City to Ipswich. Yeah, this was uh, this was a different game. And as we were talking about earlier, it was this you know the songwriting that made the difference and uh, stood the stones apart. That was before that. I think that was from the that was from the very beginning. Because if you look at the groups who didn't write, they didn't last. The amount of R and B hits that we could prune and take was fast disappearing. And you know the searches were sweets for my sweet. I mean, the, the Hermans, Peter Noon and Herman's Hermits, uh, I'm into something good. It's a great, great song by a guy called Earl Jean out of the, the Brill building. But, and this, this is one of making, that's why I so often consider, I do consider, and like to say that above me, above Joe Meek, above George Martin, Mickey Most was, to me, the best British record producer of that time. Because he knew how to hunt for songs and get the songs. For, I mean, in, in August 1964, he had three records in the top 10 
all by different artists and all by different writers. So it's becoming clear the genius of Mickey Most. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's play Eddie Mitchell's solo route sixty six. Yes, please. Oh, 
So we get to our last track, Andrew, Tom Mish, uh, featuring De La Soul, It Runs Through Me. Tom's an artist that you've uh, talked about in your pod chat, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was a breath of fresh air. Tom Mish. Yeah. And the funny thing is, in this world today, seven out of ten people I mention him to have never heard of him. Mm. Because in the last 20 or 25 years, we're in this sort of niche thing. Like, say, 25 years ago, I would know who was playing um, the Bristol Colston Hall, if it's still there, or the Royal Festival Hall. I may not be a fan, but I, I would know what genre of music it was. I'd be familiar with it. Now it's sort of got all hidden away where, and this is technology to some extent, where you're, you only know about what you're actually interested in. Your, your doors are not as open as they used to be. I was in Montreal, which I love being in, mm. and a guy, a friend of mine who owns the studios, I said, oh, yeah, Mike, um, he said, well, this, here's what's appearing in the next few days here. I had no idea who he was, and I went, and normally, you know, I'll, with, if I go and see uh, an act that is established, well-known, closer to my age, unless I know them, you know, and manners uh, decree that I have to go and see them afterwards, you know, after five or six, seven numbers, I know exactly what they're going to do, and I leave, right? Mm, you've yeah. heard it all before. Yeah, I don't need to be out that late. And this guy absolutely captivated me. And when I say only, you know, seven out of ten people, admittedly they're not his age, but they're in the business, most of them, right? Mm. But he's working all the time, so he's building up. And I, it's a small club in um, Montreal. I was up, in, I was in the balcony, and the girls that were there knew the words already the same in in a similar way that audiences in Mexico know all the words to every English act. Right. Mm. And he, um, boy, did he swing. Also, as I told Johnny Marr, and he smiled, uh, I said, also it was so nice to see an act on stage that only needed one guitar. Mm. Right. And the songs were just this side of naff. The lyrics were, you know, if he'd gone any further, they'd be as blatantly painful as some of the wonderful lyrics of Bacharach and David. I mean, you know, only Bacharach and David got away with, do you know the way to San Jose? Or, you know, right? And that's close to being, it's, you can't go, do you know the way to Huddersfield? Mm. Right? Mm. You know, if I had to guess, I would say Tom Mish was weaned on the second cycle of Motown, meaning when Motown got political, like Marvin Gaye and, and Stevie, Ray, Stevie Ray, uh, Norman Whitfield, who, who, if Mickey Most is the greatest British record producer of that time, I would say, hands down, Norman Whitfield was the great American producer-writer with the stuff with the temptations and things, the undisputed truth and all that, right? But, yeah, no, Tom Mish... Uh, and at the end, because I don't norm, you know, I don't live in England. I don't, I don't have those. I just went, wow. When when we, I, I use the royal we. When we do it well, we do it better than anybody else in the world. Mm. That's that was the gift that Tom Mish gave me. I didn't want to listen to his records for a, a couple of months after that because so often what happens, unfortunately, for for young or new acts starting out, is they because of the economics of their situation the ideal way would be that you went on the road with the songs and worked the songs in before you recorded them mm. whereas you make the record and then you go out and promote it and nine months later you're much much better at playing those songs but he was great really great 
That's absolutely brilliant, Andrew. Thank you so much for your time. I'm wishing you all the best with your uh, pod chat, Sounds and Vision, available from all good podcast clients now, especially to your pod chat with uh, Johnny Marr. I'll be listening, and uh, thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a privilege. Thank you very much, and thank you for finding me. I appreciate it. Brilliant. Thanks again. Uh, Take care. All right, man. Okay, great. Thank you. Best of luck with yours. Right, take care. Much appreciated. Bye. Ciao. One, two, three, four. I love the way it flows, I love the way it grows There's something in this sound that takes me far It's like a special song, can move my mood along But I cannot say you're hit through my guitar She told me at the baseline, and everything will be alright She told me that the groove is mine, it will take us through the night Say no, you with that summer glow. The music gives me sun when winter starts. She told me at the baseline, and everything will be alright. She told me that the beat is mine, it will rock through the night. And where I go, can't explain, I'll never know. But it's beautiful. This away from me Oh, the way I hear the melody The waves bring clarity Running through me You can't take this away from me Oh, the way I hear the melody The waves bring clarity Running through me
perfected through the rhymes of run. Walk it this way and leave the party stunned. This music did launch me with no aim. I've landed on some plane. Where I am, I can't explain or never know, but it's beautiful. So you can't take this away from me. Oh, the way I hear the melody. The waves bring clarity. Running through me. Come on, y'all. You can't take this away from me. Oh, the way I hear the melody. The waves bring clarity. Running through me. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Patrons get access to unedited interviews as they're done, news, plus even access to my exclusive interview archive. All your support goes into keeping the show running and moving forward and getting amazing guests. To support me, just go to patreon.com forward slash strangebrewpod or go to the strangebrew.co.uk forward slash about. Thanks very much and any reviews on your podcasting services are greatly appreciated. Thank you.